Would you stand with me, friends, as we read the Lord's word this morning from Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. And again, let's listen to the Lord's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated, friends? Again, our Father, we thank you for this day and for your word, and pray that in spite of our frailties, we ask that you would bless us that you'd bless this servant with clarity and that you would bless your people with ears to hear. And we pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted and that your kingdom advanced in the kingdom of Satan, that it would suffer injury, great injury. To this end, we ask again for an outpouring of your spirit, not that we would dance and have ecstatic utterances, but that we would have very clear minds, that we would have ears that are open and hearts that are tender to you that receive your seed. And we ask now this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Who do people say that Jesus is? The Jew will tell you he's a rabbi, he was a revolutionary, but his ideas were dangerous. They do not believe he is the Messiah. The Muslims will say that Jesus was a prophet, a messenger of God in the likes of Moses, Abraham, or Noah, But he's not quite as good as Muhammad. The Baha'i, they put him in a category. They put Jesus in a category with great religious leaders like the Buddha or the Krishna, Zoroaster or Muhammad. And the Hindus, they vary. Some say he's a beloved son of Krishna, an enlightened teacher, an avatar, a source of strength, the epitome of perfection, the reincarnation of Elisha or Elijah, a student of John the Baptist. And the Buddhists, They say he's a compassionate being who dedicated his life to the welfare of human beings. As I went to the fair this week, I could hear all sorts of things. And my thanks to Tim Starks for a killer question to ask. And it was great. As people would come up to the booth and being enticed by taffy, I would ask them if they'd want to register for a free Bible, a Reformation study Bible. And I'd ask them, do you have a Bible? And they would oftentimes say, no, yeah, I've got six. I've got (laughs) any number of of things. And I'd ask them, who do you think Jesus is? And it was surprising to me, though it shouldn't have been surprising to me. Who do you think Jesus is? Some would stand there and look at me with mouths hanging open and say, I really don't know who he is. Others would say he was certainly a good man. He was a moral teacher, an itinerant preacher, 
He taught peace and love. He gave rights to women and respect for children. He spoke out against hypocrisy of the religious and the rich. He was a man of incredible ethics. Answers ranged all across the board. And I want to ask you, friends, who do you believe Jesus is? What would you have answered had you come up to the booth? And I asked you that very question. Who do you believe Jesus is? You know what was amazing to me? Several people, I would ask them, do you believe he's God? And they would say, well, no. That opens up a door, doesn't it, for conversation. Who do you believe Jesus Christ is? And what do you think we're doing here? You think we're here to just make you more moral? Make you nice people? Are we here to extol the virtues, the glory of Jesus Christ? Does it matter? To many, it doesn't matter what you believe. I was engaged in a conversation for an hour and a half with uh, LDS folks. And they actually told me this. When I would say, the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus of the LDS. They say, well, it doesn't matter as long as you're sincere. I can tell you, being sincere can get you killed if your sincerity is misplaced. I've tried not work with electricity because oftentimes I sincerely believe I've turned off the right circuit and I put my pliers in a socket that is actually still alive. I'm sincere. I really believe that what I'm doing is proper. But it's a misplaced sincerity. It's a misplaced belief. And so it is with the Mormons, our neighbors. There are many people today who are suffering, even now, who have been sincere and earnest and nice people who have been sincerely wrong about Jesus and who he is. To know Jesus for who he truly is, it's fundamental, it is central to everything else. It affects our mission as a church. It affects the advance of the kingdom of heaven and individuals as to how we live from day to day. It affects our outlook on life, our attitudes towards our sins and others. It affects our ethics. Let me give you an example. If I merely believe that Jesus was just a nice moral guy, then my whole effort at at evangelism would be to just get people to be like Jesus. Right? What would Jesus do? I'll give you a bracelet so that you can imitate Jesus in your life. And, And don't get me wrong. Jesus does set an example for us. He says he washes the feet of his disciples, and he goes, now I want you to go and wash the feet as well. But is that all Jesus Christ is? Did he come to just simply set a moral example for us? Did he just teach us how to teach? Or is there something more that is going on? As I mentioned to the man, the LDS man, he says, well, you know, we're going to have our differences, and it really doesn't matter at the end of the day because it's all we're all doing the same thing. And I had to say to him, you're in a boat that's sinking. And the Jesus of the Bible is a boat that doesn't sink. It matters what you believe for your eternity. And what is your confidence placed? And who is this Jesus Christ? You may be sincere in your beliefs and yet be sincerely wrong. But you would be blessed if you would hear what Jesus says here. Many have inaccurate ideas of who Jesus is. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Again, let me read this to you again. 
Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or or one of the prophets. There are many inaccurate ideas of who Jesus is. Here's this setting. They're in the district of Caesarea Philippi. It's situated near uh, one of the sources of the Jordan River by Mount Hermon. And Jesus asks this question. He knows the hearts of men. He knows their actions. And this question he asks is for the benefit of his disciples. What one commentator said is, is that Jesus desires to have the disciples state the wrong opinions of men in order to set over against them their own right convictions. Again, Jesus says, uh, he's asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or as Mark and Luke record, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now Jesus is speaking of common people. We should be clear about this. He is not asking Fellows, what do the teachers of Israel say about me? Because the teachers of Israel said that Jesus was born of fornication or that he had a demon. Jesus is asking, what does the common man think on the streets of Palestine? Who do they say that I am? And they're saying John the Baptist, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We can understand why they might say John the Baptist. Herod himself in Matthew 14, 2, just a, a couple chapters earlier, He spoke to his servants and he said this. This is John the Baptist. He's speaking of Jesus. This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Again, they would say, Elijah. Malachi writes in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So you can understand why some would say, this this has got to be the fellow that Malachi was talking about in the Old Testament, or Jeremiah. Perhaps they thought he was Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet who cried for his people. So Jesus himself would cry for the state of Israel. William Hendrickson said this, Did they imagine that in the person of Jesus, Jeremiah had returned in order to bring back the tent, the ark, and the altar of incense, which according to a legend recorded in the intertestamental writings that a prophet, that this prophet Jeremiah had hid in a cave. This is, this is maybe Jeremiah. He's going to restore good things. They say he's one of the prophets. They don't really know who he is. The average man thought, but he has this mark of greatness about him. Right? He, he heals the sick. He, he makes blind people to see. He speaks with such authority. And, and we hear the demons say, have you come to torment us before our time? And he says, be quiet and come out. And they have to obey. This is amazing. Who is this guy? He's certainly one of the prophets. There's a variety of opinions about who Jesus Christ was. And why wouldn't they be varied and favorable? Look at all he did and all he said and how he stood against the wicked and spoke for the person with little or no voice. But of all these favorable opinions that were abounding concerning Jesus, they were all wrong. How? Because they did not go far enough. 
The way that they spoke about Jesus Christ is that he was the best there was among men. But human and fleshly minds cannot conceive of anything greater. Have you ever tried to think of a color that's never been invented? Try that and blow your mind. You can't do it. But that's what, that's what we, it is to try to imagine. Who is this Jesus fellow? Our reality consists of what we can conceive and what we have experienced. That's how we determine what we know. Oh, I've seen this before. I've done that. Oh, I've seen something like this before. And so they're asking, Jesus is asking his disciples, what is the man on the street? What is the common bloke? What does he think of me? Who does he say that I am? And they're listing noble people. And they're saying it because of things that they've heard and things that they've seen. But they're not telling the truth concerning Jesus. So this conception and opinion of who Jesus Christ is, is made up of all of the noblest of human ideas, but still they were wrong. Is this your idea of who Jesus Christ is? Who is Jesus Christ? Not who is he to you, but who is he? And in what are you resting? In what are you trusting? So we have people thinking that he is a great teacher and this moral example that he's, he's instructed us to sell all you have, live poorly, speak out against corruption and love, and tolerate everyone except the intolerable. And this we have these things that are, that are abounding in our culture about who this Jesus Christ is. Who is he? Who is he? Many people have the wrong idea about Jesus Christ. And I assure you, friends, that those wrong ideas will lead to death. Because that's not who he is. Some people, however, have the right idea. Listen to what Jesus says here in, in 15 and 16. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Many may have a wrong understanding of Jesus and are content to remain there, and some are blessed with a right knowledge of who he is. Again, Jesus asked his disciples, this time saying, but who do you say that I am? And the you there is plural. In the original language, he's addressing his disciples. Peter commonly is the mouthpiece of the rest, right? He's the one who, who speaks. Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? He's already revealed a key fact about himself by referring to himself as the Son of Man. Before we get into Peter's response, I want you to think about this for a second. What does it mean when he says, who do they say the Son of Man is? Who is the Son of Man? Louis Burkhoff said, this is the most common self-designation of Jesus. He applies this, this name, this title to himself on more than 40 occasions. It is a title, the Son of Man, which is difficult to nail down one meaning. Scholars, biblical and conservative scholars, say that its origin is found in Daniel 7.13, which reads, I continue to watch in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one coming like a son of man, and he advanced toward the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus himself picks up on this idea in Matthew 26, 64, where we are told, 
we are told that Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself, nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here's this uh, eschatological Son of Man. Here is this powerful uh, being who is spoken of in the book of Daniel. Sometimes the title Son of Man indicates our Savior's humiliation, his trial and suffering, uh, the sufferings that he would undergo. And sometimes it refers to his exaltation, his glory and his resurrection. William Hendrickson summarizes it beautifully, saying this, the term Son of Man emphasized the fact that the bearer of this title was not the nationalistic Messiah of Jewish expectation, but in a sense, the Savior of the world. His well-meant invitation of salvation by grace through faith does out, goes out rather to all men. He himself is unique among men. He is the son of man. He is the man of sorrows. But this very path of suffering leads to the crown to glory. Moreover, this glory is revealed not only in eschatologically when he comes with the clouds, but reaches back as it were through his entire life on earth and through every redemptive act. He is always the glorious son of man. When Jesus refers, my friends, to himself as the Son of Man, he is saying something so huge, so significant, that he is the Ancient of Days who takes on human flesh, who comes into this world, who suffers in our stead, and who conquers the grave. This is Jesus Christ. When you say, he's a teacher, he's a good fella, you're vastly understating who he is. That's not the one, the Jesus who saves. It is this Jesus who sits at the right hand of God, the Father who saves. This one who is the risen Savior, the risen King, sitting at the right hand of the Father. We vastly undersell Jesus Christ. We don't state it clearly enough. We don't state it boldly enough. We mustn't be content with saying, He's like other religious people. This mamsy, pamsy, oh, please don't, you don't want to do that. Love. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, answering for himself and the others, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Once again, this term Christ, he says you are the Christ. He is not a Christ. He's not a Christ among many Christs. He's not a God among many gods. He is the Christ. He is very God of very God, begotten, not made. This term Christ um, is the word anointed. Things were anointed in the Old Testament to signify holiness or separation unto God. Prophets and priests and kings were anointed. One commentator said, the long-awaited anointed one, the one who was as mediator, was set apart or ordained by the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be his people's chief prophet, only high priest, and eternal king. There was this tension throughout all of scripture among the people of God 
this growing tension of years and years and centuries and generation after generation of hardship and trial and subjugation. When is the Messiah going to come? The argument can be made that in Genesis chapter 3.15, when the Lord promises that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that in Genesis 4, when we get there, they're looking for the Messiah as early as Genesis chapter 4. They're waiting and waiting and waiting. In fact, if you read from Luke chapter 2, um, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 32, listen to this. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, the consolation, the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. My friends, when Peter says, you are the Christ, it's a huge statement. The Christ is the one who the Jews were waiting for, who they were looking for, who they were hoping for. And in the book of Acts, we see repeatedly how the Apostle Paul, when he would enter into a city, he would go straightway to a synagogue where the Jews were gathered to proclaim to them that their Christ, the Messiah, had come. The, the promised Messiah was there. Peter's words are, you are the Christ. He understands who Jesus is, that he's not just a prophet. He's not just a, a John the Baptist and Elijah or Jeremiah or some one of the other prophets. You're the Christ. You're the Christ. The Lord had promised a prophet. He said through Moses, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own countrymen. You shall listen to him. And in Luke 24, 19, as the disciples are on the road to Emmaus, um, and Jesus said to them, or they said rather regarding Jesus, that he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed prophet. The Lord had promised a priest in Psalm 110. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And in Romans 8.34, we are told, who is he who condemns us? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed priest that the Old Testament spoke about. And finally, the Lord also promised a king. But as for me, writes David in Psalm 2, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Gabriel, the angel, said to Mary concerning Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of, of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus Christ is the anointed king. 
Peter's words, you are the Christ, is a tremendous confession of who he believed Jesus to be and who they, the disciples, believed him to be. And so we sing at Christmas time, we sing this, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Peter's words are huge. You're the Christ. You're the one we've been looking for. You're the one Moses wrote about and that the prophets wrote about and all foretold. You're the the one, the one who was anointed, who was set apart by God to bring about comfort for the sinner. And only he could do it. It wasn't teach you to be a better person. Watch how this warrior king intervenes on our behalf and he conquers Satan. Watch what he does as he reveals the Almighty to us. Watch what he does as he intercedes for us. See what he has done. But he says he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, my friends, he's not a mere human Christ, though says Peter. He is the Son of the living God. He uses this phrase in a unique sense. He is the only living God, the only source of life for all people. He is one with God the Father, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What, did, what, did, um, what do we have recorded in Matthew 3.17 at his baptism? We hear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then again in Matthew 17, verse 5, in the Mount of Transfiguration, we hear this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is God and the Son of God in that he does the will of the Father and he has come from God the Father. And it is mysterious. We call this the doctrine of the Trinity, right? One God, three persons, eternally blessed. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. This is what Peter confesses. Now here's a question for you. How did these common men come to have such an uncommon understanding of Jesus Christ? How do common people come to have such an uncommon understanding of Jesus Christ? Dumb luck? They smarter than average other people? You know what's what's interesting? What's interesting is this. You don't have to have theological training to understand this. This is what the Bible teaches. How did Peter, a fisherman, along with this group of ragamuffin disciples, come to know Jesus Christ? My friends, they were blessed. They were blessed. Those who have the right idea of Jesus are blessed. Remember, we said earlier, our reality consists of what we can conceive and what we have experienced. I'd give you an example of this very thing. If you look over at Matthew chapter 9, it's a wonderful, it's one of my favorite, very all-time favorite passages. 
It's 9, 1 through 8. And remember, this is the, the paralytic who is healed. And we're told, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is a mighty statement. He says your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? People are incensed that Jesus is making this declaration. Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Jesus has just said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. How do you know what's actually occurring? How do you know he has authority? But so that you'll know that I have authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. And what do they say? Amazing. God has given authority to men. They should have fallen on their faces and worshipped Jesus Christ right there as being the one true God. And they don't. They don't. Their reality consisted of what they could conceive and what they had experienced. They've never experienced God in human flesh. They couldn't conceive of it like a color that they couldn't imagine. They couldn't imagine it. And so it didn't fit the paradigm. So therefore, it doesn't work. Natural men and women do not, cannot conceive of who Jesus Christ is. They can't do it. And that's why we hear things like he's a teacher. He was a moral man. He was a a great instructor of love. He does all of these things and they're all falling short. They don't know who he is. Because they've never run into anything like him before. Those who have the right idea of Jesus, my friends, those are the ones who are blessed. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He commends Peter for getting it right. There is a right answer, isn't there? And there are wrong answers concerning Jesus Christ. They can't all be the same. Jesus calls him blessed. Blessed because he had received favor from God and therefore, in the largest, most extreme sense, he was happy, he's favored. And notice what he says, Simon bar Jonah. Simon, the son of Jonah. You're a common man, Peter. How is it that a common man comes to an uncommon understanding of Jesus Christ? You're not capable in yourself to come up with this kind of profound spiritual truth. He's blessed. He's blessed. And all who believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, that he is the Christ, that he is the one who has come to deliver, all who believe this, you are blessed along with Peter the fisherman. 
And we're blessed because, as Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but my Father in heaven. In other words, my friends, Peter did not come to this truth of who Jesus is on his own. He didn't see signs that convinced him. It wasn't because he willed it so or had more convincing proofs, but it was because of God's grace that his eyes were open. And that would be true for anyone sitting in here who's a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, I was raised in a Christian home. I heard sermons from the time I was like three weeks old. Every single Sunday, multiple times a Sunday, And I never heard the gospel until blessing came from above. A lady asked me that. What's your story? I said, oh, I was 14 when the Lord saved me. I grew up in a church listening to sermons, much like the children here, falling asleep on my mom's shoulder. Couldn't wait for the sermon to be done. And then one day at a Bible camp, a stinky, smelly 14-year-old boy. And the heavens opened. It thundered. And I was confronted by my sin. And I tasted of the goodness and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Fourteen years I sat in churches. I heard, I heard, I heard. You would think that I would have gotten it. I didn't get it until the Lord, the Lord looked upon me in favor until his spirit opened my eyes and stopped my ears and I heard the voice of the Savior say, Come to me, sinner, and be saved. And I came Willingly, freely, joyfully, trembling, humbling, all of those things, a gift of God. I couldn't will it so, I couldn't make it so. Listen, listen again, and I'm just going to read. I have a slew of verses written down. For the sake of time, I'm not reading them all. But listen to this. In, in Matthew 12, at that time, Jesus said, I'm in verse 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And again, in John chapter 1, and again, I could go on with countless verses here 1 12 and 13 but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name who were born listen not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God how does an uncommon how does a, a common man, an everyday man, a man who's not trained, a man who has no understanding of theologically deep things, how does he come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ and that he's the son of the living God and that in him alone 
we are saved. How does that happen, my friends? It happens by an act of God's will, an act of his sovereign grace. That's how we come to know Jesus Christ. Again, it is a gift from God. It is the Lord's doing. Does this make you proud? It shouldn't. It should make you extremely grateful and humble. The truth of what the Lord has done to redeem us ought to fill our hearts with um, such thankfulness and gratitude. Understand that you have come to be able to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because you have been blessed by God. God himself has revealed this to you. He has opened this up to you. Otherwise, this is a nut that can't be cracked. That's the way the scriptures describe this. It's a mystery. He has revealed it to you. It did not come naturally, but supernaturally by the Spirit of God. And therefore, we ought to be humble before the Lord as it is a gift from God so that we're not anyone boasting in our flesh and towards our neighbors, our mistaken neighbors, such as I ran into a bunch of them this week, we should be very gentle. And they say things like, well, Jesus was a good man and he was an enlightened teacher and they don't get it. You gently tell them the truth. Ah, oh, my friend, he's so much more. He's God. Some of them did that. What? Yes. You understand? If he wasn't God, there could be no redemption for your soul. A perfect sacrifice had to be made to redeem an imperfect person, an imperfect people. And therefore we pray, asking the Lord to make us faithful witnesses. And so we watch our life and we watch our doctrine closely. And we pray that the Lord, just as he has been gracious to us, that he would be merciful and gracious to others who are yet dead in their sins. And then open your mouth and speak the truth. Does it matter what we believe about Jesus Christ? It most certainly does. It most certainly does. It matters for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your many kindnesses to us. And as we hear in your word, how an uncommon understanding of who you are uh, can only occur because of your grace. We are debtors to you for your grace. As we approach this table today, we are reminded once again, that we are debtors to your grace. We could not have conceived of such a plan that you would come, O oh Jesus, and take upon yourself human flesh to be the Christ, the hope of your people, the one who would bring deliverance. We rejoice that you have been so merciful to us to open our eyes and to give us understanding of who you are. We don't boast, Father, at all. For had you not looked upon us in your kindness, we surely would die in our sins and be separate from you for all eternity. And we acknowledge, O oh Lord, that we are not better than others. 
but we are vessels of clay just like everyone else and yet vessels of clay that have been prepared for your worship use us we pray to advance your kingdom and your glory help us now we ask in Jesus name amen